And so it's with great joy to be back in the pulpit doing that which God has called me to do. As we look now in Exodus chapter 28, and if you want to take your word and turn with me there, I'm going to read a few verses at the beginning, a few verses at the end, and we will uh, call out a few in between as we go through the message this morning. Exodus 28, beginning at verse 1. And take thou unto thee Aaron thy brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office, even Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, Aaron's sons. And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother for glory and for beauty. I'm jumping down now to verse 40. And for Aaron's sons thou shalt make coats, and thou shalt make for them girdles and bonnets. Thou shalt make for them glory and for beauty. And thou shalt put them upon Aaron thy brother and his sons with him, and thou shalt anoint them and consecrate them and sanctify them, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. And thou shalt make them linen breeches to cover their nakedness from the loins even unto the thighs they shall reach." And they shall be upon Aaron and upon his sons when they come into the tabernacle of the congregation, or when they come near unto the altar to minister in the holy place, that they bear not iniquity and die. It shall be a statute forever unto them and his seed after him. Our gracious Father, we ask that the Spirit of God will be poured out upon us fresh this day. That we can see our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, touched with all of our infirmities, yet without sin, who was able and who did enter into the holy place with His own blood there to make propitiation for our sins. And we are now complete in Him. We are found in Him. And our lives are hidden with Him. And when He returns in glory, our lives will be found with Him. And glory as well. We're thankful for his resurrection and for the first fruits of our resurrection that is herein promised. We thank you for cleansing us of all of our sins and beautifying us with salvation. We thank you for the beauty of holiness in which we now are entered. And we are thankful for the beauty of this place. As we look around and we see through the eyes of faith the, the blue and the scarlet and the, the gold, the purple interwoven together and the glistening gold in the inner sanctuary flickering with the the light from the lampstand smelling the incense waffling over into it and how thankful we are that for that mercy seat as you look down from heaven and you see your law, which we have broken, there upon the law is the mercy seat and the blood of Christ. And your wrath is turned away and we are accepted in the beloved. Lord, refresh us this day with your grace and be merciful to us that we can once again taste and see that the Lord is good and be enamored, awestruck with what you have done 
that we will give you glory and thanksgiving and praise perpetually. And we pray that you would bring forth fruit from the message preached, that our hearts would be open and attentive to it. And we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen and amen. You may be seated. I was just finishing up my last semester of college. When I went to a wedding and there was my future wife in the bridal party up on the platform. And my life has never been the same since. Yeah, amen. We had known each other since I was in seventh grade, she in fifth, same church, grew up together. But somehow in that moment, there was a rekindling of something or a kindling of something that God had planned that we had not anticipated. We fell in love and I got a job offer from Hewlett-Packard and upon the offer, not yet graduated and not yet started, I went to the bank with my mom who co-signed a loan that took me three years to pay off to buy her an engagement ring. I don't suggest you follow that, (laughs) young men. (laughs) There's greater wisdom there. But I wanted to adorn my bride-to-be with glory and honor and beauty and something of great value that she could glory in. And with great sacrifice, I exhibited that love to her. And it was more than a ring. It was what was behind the ring that became the thing that's most cherished. And this morning, I would like to preach from this passage on Aaron's garments, clothes. As we consider together the glory and the beauty of our Lord God. As a church, we need to be refreshed in the glory and the beauty of the Lord. To the extent that the first part of this message will be this morning and the second part, more practically speaking, will be this afternoon. As we answer the question, what is the chief end of man? It is the same answer that we give if we were to ask, what is the chief end of God? And the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. As we have already read, we are created and redeemed for His pleasure. As a church, we need to be revived in that purpose. We just read from a passage which is the description of Aaron's garments that were prescribed and that were given to him. These were the high priestly garments of Aaron and for his sons, that he would wear when he went into the sanctuary to minister. 
And those garments tell us a lot about God, and they tell us a lot about Christ, and they tell us a lot about the work that He did for us and is doing for us at the Father's right hand, even now as our great high priest. If there is one thing that heritage needs in this very moment of time, it is a fresh vision of Christ and His glory. Amen? Amen. Every one of us. When people were to look on Aaron arrayed in this specially crafted attire, they were to reflect on the visible message and they were to learn of the spiritual truth that corresponds to the great ideal priest who was to come, of which we know now as Christ Jesus our Lord, the Son of God, and the only true mediator between God and man. In the passage before us, in the whole chapter, we, we have before us seven articles of Aaron's garb, but three stand out for special attention, which each includes a statement of their purpose. The ephod, the breastplate, and the crown. Each one of these pieces are linked together by a verb, which describes or at least is associated with each one of those three pieces, and that verb is to bear, to bear. As we consider the ephod first in verse 12, and you shall put the two stones on the shoulders of the ephod as a memorial stone for the sons of Israel. So Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders as a memorial. As a memorial. The ephod was a short garment that extended from the shoulders to the waist. It consisted of two pieces of fine linen tied together at the shoulders, or connected together at the shoulders. The rich colors of blue and gold and scarlet and purple, if nothing else, magnify the glory and the beauty of the office of which Aaron bore. Which would point to the office of mediator in Christ Himself. Most significant were the two onyx stones set in gold sockets upon the two shoulders of the high priest. Inscribed on each of those stones were all of the twelve tribes of Israel, the names of those tribes. As Aaron would stand before the Lord, he carried on his shoulders the names of those he represented as a memorial before the Lord to bring to the Lord and to bring to the Lord's mind and will of the names of those people of which the great high priest brought with him, bearing them on his shoulders. In his office, Aaron took the people into the presence of God. On the shoulders, the shoulders represent strength and power. It is that which carries heavy loads and burdens. It is upon that which yokes are given. And upon the shoulders, heavy burdens and loads then are 
carried. And here, symbolically, Aaron bore the names of the people of God and brought them into the very presence of God. And the lesson here is that we ourselves have no power, no ability, no strength to stand before the Lord. We have no right and no standing before God Himself. But the high priest has the infinite, sufficient strength to uphold all of our concerns to God. Aaron was only a type. Christ was the fulfillment. The ephod teaches us that Christ has the power. Christ has the strength to uphold His people before God, the Creator of the universe, the great I Am, the One that we rebelled against, the One in which we have no standing in our sinful, sorrowful, state. But Christ has a standing there, and on His shoulders He bears us and brings us right into the holy place before God's presence, and God sees us as Christ upholds us there. And here's the astounding thing, that God cannot look upon Christ without seeing us in inseparable union with Him. Isn't that a tremendous blessing? God cannot see Christ without seeing us in an inseparable union with Him. The second article of which I'd like to address here is the breastplate. Down in verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. When he goes into the holy place as a memorial before Yahweh continually, and you shall put in the breastplate of judgment the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. So Aaron shall bear the judgment of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. The breastplate was made of fine linen that was folded over to make a pouch and it was held in position by two gold chains chains uh, with the background of blue lace that went over the ephod. Arranged in four rows upon the breastplate were twelve precious, costly Valuable stones that the Lord ordered. And upon each one of those valuable precious stones was inscribed each of the names of the tribes of Israel, representing the entirety of the people of God. This was another obvious picture that wherever the high priest went, there God's people went with him. The locations of the stones over the heart testifies the compassion and the sympathy that the priest was to have for the people. 
The heart was the symbol and the heart of love and mercy and pity. And the message here is that that ideal priest, the one that Aaron would typify, but who was fulfilled in Christ, who fulfills this picture prophecy, is touched with all of our infirmities, yet without sin. Touched with all of our infirmities, of all of His people, at all times. He is inseparable. And that's why Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. All of our infirmities, all of the time, he has tender compassion. Forever on his heart, those he represents and presents before the throne of grace. His people are ever precious to him, and his thoughts are very tender toward them. And he intercedes for them, he prays for them. Jesus cares for us. That's why he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always bear you upon my heart. And where I go, there you go. And where you go, there I am. He cares for everything that hurts us. He cares for every struggle that we contend with. He is tender toward us in all of our infirmities and He prays to the Father in our behalf. And the Father always hears the prayers of His Son. Because of our union with Christ, our inseparable union with Christ, God deals with us as He deals with His Son. The breastplate teaches us that Christ has the tender mercy to plead for us. And that He does. The third article is the Holy Crown. We see this down in beginning at verse 36. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. Holiness to the Lord. And you shall put it on a blue cord that it may be on the turban and it shall be on the front of the turban. And so it shall be on Aaron's forehead that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things which the children of Israel hallow in their holy gifts. And it shall always be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. A plate of pure gold placed on the background or backdrop of blue lace was then fixed to the turban or the, the miter or the, the headdress of, of Aaron, which makes up the priestly crown. Inscribed on that gold plate was holiness to the Lord. 
And as Aaron would enter into the holy place, the Lord would see flashing upon his brow the password to enter into his presence. Holiness to the Lord. The Lord is absolutely and infinitely holy and no one can enter into his presence without himself being holy which completely disqualifies all of us. Our sin renders us unfit to come before God, and and so a holy mediator, sinless and blameless and pure, is needed. Aaron was not that man. But he did symbolically point forward to that one who would be holiness to the Lord. Aaron symbolically took the guilt incurred by the people against holiness and with their sins on his shoulders and over his heart, in spite of their guilt, they were accepted before God in the person of the mediator. The problem with Aaron is that the people themselves would never see a perfect sinless mediator. But what he pictured would show that he would come. And he did. And Jesus is his name. Jesus is the sinless one. Absolutely and completely holy, harmless and pure. He alone is qualified to be the one as the the perfect qualified mediator between God and man. And there he went sinless. Bearing the guilt of our sin in order that God might accept us based on His merits of holiness and righteousness. And to be in union with Christ who is our representative, to bear our names on His shoulders, to bear our names over His compassionate heart, is to enjoy full pardon and full acceptance before a holy God. And God sees believers now only through the flashing glory of Christ's holiness. Christ's merit is the only ground on which we can stand before God. And only Christ has the password into heaven. There is no other name given among men whereby we can be saved, save Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel. Christ fulfills the the holy crown picture. We see one piece of the garment, however, that showed Aaron and his sons insufficient for such things as this, his britches, his britches. No one would see those britches except for God. They were a piece of fabric that covered his waist and went down to beyond his thigh or covered his thigh. They covered his waist, thigh, and his groin. They were under his long robe. No one would see but God. 
And the purpose of these britches were to cover his nakedness. It was an issue of modesty before a holy God that Aaron then had to be, even as the priest, even as merely a type. When man sinned, he brought shame upon himself And that was outwardly visible to God. Oh, true, it was something deep down into the heart of man. But it was outwardly visible to God. And his nakedness had to be covered appropriately. Man tried to cover it at first, but it wasn't appropriate. God alone could cover his nakedness appropriately. So that when Aaron and his sons would step across the threshold into the holy place... God looking up didn't want to see that shame. That's the idea. That's the picture. It really showed that Aaron was unfit for doing the real work of the mediator. It showed that that had to be done every single year on the Day of Atonement over and over and over again. There needed to be a different kind of priest, a different kind of priesthood even. And that's what Christ did, the sinless priest after the order of Melchizedek, which is a superior priesthood than Aaron himself, who was sinless, personally had no need for britches before the presence of God. When he died upon the cross, he was stripped naked. In our eyes, it was shameful and humiliating. And it was, but before God, it was something quite different. It showed that he personally was sinless and his nakedness was appropriate before God because in him there was no shame. He was like Adam before the fall. Unashamed before God and naked. Unashamed. Bearing our shame. And the Scripture gives us this picture of God's glory and beauty in all of these garments. And it points us to the glory and the beauty of God Himself. And the glory and the beauty of Christ. And the glory and the beauty of His bride. Let's consider these two attributes, glory and beauty, as they relate to us here at Heritage. God's glory is a divine attribute related to God's visibility. Related to God's visibility. It's one of the most common words, vocabulary words, in the Christian language, if you will, and yet one of the most difficult to define. What is God's glory? And we could spend the rest of our earthly lives Trying to nail that one down. But it is something to do with God's visibility as it relates to us. And some of the ways we see God's glory, we we see it in the glory cloud, the the light that emanates from the the, the cloud itself that, that led the children of Israel out of Egypt. But it wasn't just light that was emanating being the glory, it was the presence of God Himself in the light that is the glory. 
He's present with His covenant people. He was present at the burning bush. He is present in the theophanies of which He then shows Himself to His people. And there's this visible aspect of His glory that is visible. He he shows us His glory in creation and the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows forth His speech, and it speaks day and night as we see and behold the glory of God on that cloudless night. Or perhaps maybe on that beautiful full moon that we observed at about 8 o'clock as huge and perfectly full this past week as I was driving home and saw it just coming up over the horizon. And it was so glorious. But His glory is seen in mankind. Mankind was made in the image of God. And it's the image of God in man that was designed to reflect His glory visibly out into the world. Wherever man went, the knowledge of the glory of God would then cover the earth as the waters do the sea. And that was the purpose That is our purpose as priests and kings, to take the wisdom of God, the glory of God, and all that it entails, and wherever we go, bearing the image of God, it would reflect God into the world. That's what Psalm 8 testifies. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Glory and honor. Because God's glory is so overwhelming, no man can see it directly and live. And he made that very clear. So God shows us His glory indirectly. For instance, when we view the the heavens, we know that we're not viewing God's glory, but we're viewing the evidence of God's glory. Indirectly, we're viewing and understanding something about God's visible attributes of how great He is, how powerful He is, how wise He is. What is God? And who is He that He's mindful of us? He also shows glory through His image bearers. And the ultimate image bearer was Christ Himself, Hebrews 1.3. That's part of why He became the last Adam. Became fully man, yet was fully God. Took on our flesh and blood and became an image in this sense of the perfect humanity as Hebrews 1.3 says, being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, upholding all things by the word of His power, Christ. And by virtue of our union with Christ, we are glorified with Him. The picture of the King's bride in Psalm 45 is the King, which is the groom, and the bride in this royal wedding, is Christ and the church. And He's all decked out in His royal attire as a king soldier to defend His people 
and to reign over his kingdom. And she's all decked out with royal garments that is fit to be married to a king. Gold interwoven with the, the bridal garment and all dolled up in her beauty. The church. So, so beautiful was the bride that it says, the king will greatly desire your beauty. And yet it is he that made her beautiful. The royal daughter is all glorious within her palace. Her clothing is woven with gold. And here's the church, the bride of Christ, stands with her royal groom, the king of heaven and earth, while the father looks down with all the fullness of joy that a father could have at his son's wedding. Some of you men have had the tremendous opportunity of being with your son, standing beside your son on his wedding day, when the bride that he loves is standing in the back and begins to come down, and the fullness of the joy looking upon the radiant groom as he sees her beauty, and then the fullness of the dad. <laughs> the dad of the groom sees the bride now coming into his family, the one that would been his son, that he's been praying for for his son, and now the time is at hand, and now the bride comes. There's a, there's a joy that a father can express at that moment. He is so overjoyed with his son and the wedding and the, and the woman and the whole thing, and all of this is just a Trinitarian joy. Because of this visual aspect, glory is related to beauty. I would suggest in an inseparable way. As, as, a, as a gentle application, as a gentle application, consider. Consider. Let's not dumb down the beauty and the aesthetics of a Christian wedding that is meant to showcase the beauty of Christ in His church. The world's doing that today. Let, let me encourage us in a gentle way. Keep the glory. Keep the beauty. Keep the formality, keep all of this in such a way it testifies visibly of the glory and the beauty of Almighty God, of Christ our King, and the beauty of the church to whom He is married. What a beautiful picture. God's glory and beauty go together. They are visibly seen, visibly 
Unfortunately, beauty has taken a bad rap in our day, and I think primarily for two reasons, or perhaps maybe more, but as I think about the reasons why there is such a suppression and such a marginalization on aesthetics and beauty in, in spiritual circles today, I think there's two reasons. One is what I would call an evangel evangelical Gnosticism, evangelical Gnosticism. Gnosticism was an early church heresy. The Apostle John spoke against it, uh, Paul to some degree in Colossians. Uh, and, and the Gnostic heresy held, there were different variations on it, but there was a dualism. And a dualism uh, that they believed that all matter was evil, but spirit was good. And in the very extreme portions of this Gnostic heresy, the God who is the creator of the Old Testament was the evil one. And it's the God of the New Testament is all spiritual, see, is the one that delivers us out of the earthly or out of the material realm into the spiritual realm, which is all pure, lovely, good. And, and, and that's, where, that's where what's good, see. There is a, a, a form of Gnosticism within the church and particularly with evangelical circles today that says something like, well, the physical things are not truly important. It's the spiritual things, or it's not really this. It's really the issue of the heart. It's what's in the heart that matters. It's what's in the heart. It's not what you can see. It's you know, inside of me. But the error here is it separates what God has joined together, spirit and matter. God does not separate. He created us with the dirt, and He breathed into Him the breath of life, heaven itself, the Spirit of God. And so man is a composite of God's spirit and of earthly matter. And to separate those two would deny the very incarnation of Christ and deny the necessity and the glory of His resurrection. And that's why beauty is essential to our worldview. Evangelical Gnosticism, let's not be Gnostics. Number two, uh, the reason I think uh, that beauty has taken a bad rap in our day is because of the enlightenment that took place and then we're living in this postmodern world today with a worldview that began to deliberately turn away from God toward a rationalistic man that does not find good reason for beauty. The Enlightenment took, a whole, whole, took the holistic worldview that was centered around God and began to break it off into all these compartments, these different segments of God's creation segregating them into categories that they were never intended to be separated into. And beauty was then segregated and taken out and put in one of its own categories, and it was compartmentalized from the practical and utilitarian and functionable, reasonable things. And then when we want to get it to embellish, then we can grab it back out of the compartment and it's an, an added thing. And so then we could get into these conversations, these very postmodern conversations about form and function. What's the balance between the two? It, it, it shows you here that there's a compartment <laughs> that we're trying to weigh out two things. It, that's, not, that's not the view of a holistic mind that Scripture gives us. 
For us engineer types, I'm patting myself here as well, engineer types. Some of you are engineers and some of you are engineer types. Who have minds that are trained in this postmodern worldview, I have, especially on how we are trained to think in a very rational, analytical way, which can be very helpful, but it can also be very hurtful. We sometimes view beauty not as an essential part of life at all. We don't even see it to be functional, but merely embellishing. We have to be careful not to compartmentalize it into that category. Beauty is the clothing of truth, if you want to look at it that way. Scripture speaks a lot about beauty. Psalm 27.4 speaks about the beauty of God as something to be sought after. One thing I have desired of the Lord, this will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Psalm 96.6, the beauty of the Lord is seen in His temple where His glory dwells. Psalm 29.2 speaks of the attributes of glory and beauty associated with one another when he says, give to the Lord or ascribe the glory to His name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. And Psalm 90 verse 17 speaks of God's beauty spilling over into us when it says, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Again, this is not merely an internal, abstract, invisible quality. It has visible attributes. Attractiveness is not to be despised. Ugliness is not a virtue, but a characteristic of sin. Psalm 149 says, The Lord beautifies the humble with salvation so that they will be joyful in glory. Beauty and glory. Aaron's garments. And our existence is integrally related to the glory and the beauty of God. Both the tabernacle and Aaron's clothes were intricately made, made with great attention to glory and beauty, to such a degree that God specifically empowered some people like Bezalel with a a supernatural gift of wisdom to be able to take a piece of gold and beat it out into one piece and make a candle stand, a lamp stand with ornamental knobs, all of one piece together. Why did it have to be one piece? Because there's Christ in His people. The colorful tapestry of the veil and the inner lining of the Holy of Holies, the blue and the scarlet and the purple and the gold, and the most beautiful part of the entire temple or tabernacle was in the Holy of Holies in which only the priest would go once a year, but that was God's abode of His Shekinah glory who dwelt between the cherubim upon the mercy seat in all of the splendor and the glory 
which was available at least for us. In a modern post-enlightenment mind, the postmodern mentality doesn't see the use for all this extravagant work. Why not just make a tent with three compartments in it and call her done? We got a timetable to go on, buddy. Why all this unnecessary labor and this unnecessary cost and all the detailed craftsmanship? After all, couldn't we use a lot of these goods for the poor? You ever heard that statement coming from any of his disciples? When costly alabaster box was broken in perfume, and one of his disciples, Judas, who carried the money bag, faulted Jesus for the extravagance of the gift of beauty. Why? Because glory and beauty reveal truth. Glory and beauty attract people to the truth. It is the truth that makes beautiful. And the reason we find things beautiful is because we've been made in the image of God, in the image of our Creator, who is an, a Creator. And creates with beauty. And we're designed to reflect that beauty. He divinely interwoven into the fabric of our DNA. Into the image and how we were designed. Something that attracts us to God's beauty. When we see it. Because beauty is the adornment of truth. And when something is beautiful, it draws us in to take a closer look. Right? Draws us in. And we see and we look and we inspect. And then when we're in close, it engages us with it. And when we interact with it, the truth comes to bear and it changes us. It changes us. Here's the application for us this morning and there'll be another one this afternoon the church exists for the glory of God we are a visible manifestation a physical visible manifestation of Christ upon the earth Ephesians 1 20 and 21 reveal that truth. Inseparable from our head, and as a husband is one flesh with his wife, Ephesians 5, but I speak concerning Christ and the church, flesh, resurrected flesh, in union with His people upon this earth, from heaven and earth, The Christian life, the kingdom character, is that which yields the glory and the beauty of God, visibly to be seen in this world. 
We have an appearance to the visible world. And yea, we actually even have an appearance to the angels, the invisible world, who are now watching us and beholding and learning of the manifold wisdom of God by what they observe and see in the church. Ephesians 3.10 And these glory and beauty are visible attributes that are to be observed and seen. And because the work of Christ is inseparable in union with His bride, there is something that the people see in the church. They will see that we love one another. They will see joy. They will see peace that they do not have. They will see how we interact with one another. They will see humility and those who are poor in spirit. They will see not self-righteousness nor self-justification, but they will see rather an admission of sin, an admission of guilt, and they will see us mourning for that, but also confident in the one who stands behind the veil in whose anchor we are sure. They will see meekness in us. They will see us suffering long when we are wrong and pressed by one another and by the world. They will see kindness in us. They will see tenderness and gentleness in our interactions in the likeness of Jesus who bears us over His heart before the throne of God. They will see goodness in us. They will see in us faithfulness. They will see a people that encourage one another, not a people that mow each other down. They will see a people that build each other up, not people that tear each other down. They will see people that get along quite in spite of all of the different personalities and temperaments. They will see a tax collector a traitor in Israel brought into the fold and put in the very same close circle with those whom he has exhorted monies from and Jesus will change them all. They will see a people that promote peace and not stir up strife. They will see people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and want more and want more and want more. They will see a merciful people who have pity on those in need and who share of their lives and their resources to help. They will see a people who are pure in heart, a people of integrity, a people of honor. They will see a people who are not combative or competitive, but who are willing to turn the other cheek when wrong or to lose a point when questioned. 
They will see a people who love their enemies and who bless those who curse them and who pray for those who spitefully use and persecute them. That's what the world will see. That is glorious. That is beautiful. And what they're seeing in such a people is the image of God being restored in them after the likeness of His Son. And when they see that, they will not be the same. Some of those people will draw near and take a closer look at the beauty that's there. Man, I wish I had that. And God, whose grace made that beauty, will transform some of those people with the truth and begin to beautify them with salvation too. So that they can enter into the holy sanctum and worship God in the beauty of holiness through the one who wears the crown, holiness to the Lord. That's what it means to glorify God and to love beauty. And to see it in the lives of beautiful people doing beautiful things, living beautiful lives together for the glory of God, before the face of God, in inseparable union with Jesus Christ, our Lord. Folks, that's what we need today, is a refreshment of glory and beauty in Christ, our Lord Jesus. May it be. Our gracious Father in heaven, we pray that you would take this beautiful word and draw us near to its truth and change us with the truth and beautify us with salvation that we can see more clearly the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and be changed from glory to glory into His likeness and to His image. We thank You for Thy great salvation and for the, for the work that You have done for us in Christ. And we ask this day that You would restore the joy of that salvation and renew a right spirit within us. Lord, forgive heritage for our sins where we have detracted from Your glory rather than add to it, rather than advance it, rather than making it more clearly seen, rather than, than living in a way that reveals visibly your glory of Christ in us. And we pray you would lead us to delight in these things, to be a contributor to your glory, a contributor to your beauty, that the world might see us and know that we are disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they, they might notice that we have been with Him. We pray that the truth would transform us. And we pray that Your Spirit would bring forth the fruit that would be pleasing to our Heavenly Father and to our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom we have inseparable union 
in the gift of faith that you've given us. And we pray these things for his blessed sake and for his name. And in him we pray, amen and amen.